Welcome to the podcast for Real Church Coweta. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Worship Center on the campus of Central Christian School in Sharpsburg. You can also check us out online at realchurchcoweta.com or jump on Facebook at Real Church Coweta. We hope you enjoy this week's message. I love that song, Lead Me to the Cross. Is, uh, it always reminds me of the church we came to before we were here. Noah would get up and sing um, with Cassie. That's the song that Cassie, Maddie, and Noah would all sing together. And Noah, knew, he knew two parts of the song. He didn't know any of the verse. He knew, Lead Me to the Cross and Bring Me to My Knees. And I remember listening to him saying that all the time. That's the only part we need to know, right? It's just, it's lead us there and, and hopefully it brings us to our knees. So anyway, obviously I'm not Barry, a lot better looking, but... Uh, I keep hearing all the uh, the Tennessee stuff, and I just want to remind y'all that the altar is open during the entire service. Y'all can come <laughs> repent of that at any time. Um, but all y'all, you, you know that October's Pastor Appreciation Month. They've been doing different things uh, throughout that in honor of it. But in honor of Barry, he's allowed me to preach today so that y'all would learn to appreciate him a lot more. But uh, October also marks another important point in church history. It was October 31st. 1517 that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of uh, the church in Wittenberg and that sparked the Protestant Reformation. It's because of that that we're all sitting here right now and we're not in mass. Um, Luther's goal though during that it wasn't to separate the church but he was hoping that it would honestly cause the Pope to to search the scriptures and to find out that you know to honestly evaluate the legalistic systems that they had established the ones that said that if you follow these extra rules that we've added on or if you purchase these different indulgences then you don't have to stay in purgatory right and after uh luther had the opportunity to study the scriptures themselves he learned that all those ideas were completely alien to the word Like, there is no purgatory there is no we earn anything we can't earn anything now Luther wanted a clean house by taking the things that didn't belong in the church and replacing them with the truths that do. And he wanted the light of the biblical truths that had been hidden by the leaders of the church for hundreds of years back into focus. And those truths were that were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone on the authority of Scripture alone for the glory of God alone. It's got nothing to do with us because if it did, we'd ruined it. But God calls us. God does the work. And he's trying to bring that back in. Now, of course, the leaders, they didn't do an honest assessment of this in, in the biblical truths. Instead, the church pushed back and they pushed back pretty harshly. I mean, for years, they persecuted the church. They burned, uh, they burned Christians at the stake for claiming these truths that it's by faith and through grace that we're saved. And um, So they weren't willing to give that up because what happened is once you start attacking a religious system, once you start demanding reform in a religious system, then the leaders who are in those systems, they've gained power and wealth through that. That's what they want to hold on to. So when you start attacking things like that, there's going to be a lot of pushback. They're not willing to give that up, even though it contradicts everything that they claim the God that they serve says. So this isn't the first time something like this has happened, though. Um, our church was founded on the idea of Reformation. Barry and Lynn, they get together. They wanted to make a real church. That's how we became real church. It was reforming what they had came from, and now we're here. The entire Old Testament is full of Reformation. That's what the prophets were. They were coming back and saying, hey, you've gotten out of God's will. You're not obeying the commands of God. Judgment's coming if you don't get back in the will of God. And they're urging the Jews then to reform. And they did, but they didn't always stay that way. And, of course, they wouldn't obey God's commands. And they'd end up creating these systems where they could gain power, they could gain worship and notoriety, and they could gain wealth through it. 
So that's exactly where we're at in our scripture today. Um, in John 12, John 2, 12 through 25, Jesus is going to the temple and he's going to reform it. Jesus is showing up to clean house. It starts in uh, verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away and stop making my father's house a house of business. His disciples remembered that this was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he knew himself what was in man. Last week, Barry covered the wedding feast at Cana. That was the moment that Jesus turned the water into wine. That was his very first uh, miracle. And do you remember how that ended? Jesus... Shows, reveals his glory by performing a miracle. He performs a sign. And in verse 11, it says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. He reveals his glory. They believe. The, this week's story ends the same. In verse 22 of this week, it says, So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he said, and they believed the scripture and the words just Jesus was spoken. So Jesus, in another story, in the same chapter, reveals his glory, and people believe. Jesus shows up, reveal, does a miracle, does a sign, and those who have eyes to see, see. And those who... God opens their hearts and leads them to him. They believe. Why is this important? Because it should remind us of something. It should remind us that Jesus is doing exactly what Jesus came to do. Remember our key text in John 20, 31. It says, but these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus is doing exactly what he came to do. He's showing up and he's drawing people to him. He's doing his signs. He's doing his miracles throughout John. And when, when the people see it and they witness it, they're coming the salvation through him. So with that in mind, I don't, I don't want to... I want to focus on just three occasions in the text that Jesus proves that he's God. This portion of Scripture is not easy to cover. It's not because it's mysterious and hidden, but when you look at... Okay, first, full disclaimer, Barry tells me, he's like, hey... I think you, it might work out where you'll get to talk about the new birth. I was really excited about that. Nicodemus in the garden. I mean, it's amazing. He sends me a text like a week later and said, well, never mind. We're not going to make it. So you get to do the cleansing of the temple. And uh, which is no big deal until I start really reading it and studying it. And I'm like, oh, there is probably 15 sermons in this text that I just read. There is a lot. And if you don't know me, I have ADD. I go way out there. I've I can get long winded and I'm like, how can I take all of this, condense it down into 30 minutes and cover any kind of points that make sense? It's tough. It's really, really hard. And uh, 
Then I was encouraged this morning when Alex came up to me and I was like, yeah, it'll be like 25, 30 minutes. And he laughed and said, every time you say that, we go 45 to 50. So the, the students are used to it. Um, so anyway, at least it doesn't seem like it's going to go that long and I might be able to get through it, but we'll see. Um, honestly, I got hung up on two words and that's the very first two words in verse 12. So I'm going to cover it as it is. We'll go through it and we'll just focus in on the three points, the three times that Jesus is convincing us that he's God. All right. Through all of this, there's so much more going on. And I hope you go home and you study it yourselves because, I mean, this is packed, packed with so much uh, truth. It's it's amazing. And um, but like I said, we'll just focus on what John's goal is here in that it's showing us that Jesus is the son of God. All right. But verse 12 starts with after this. See, John uses this phrase to connect two narratives in the gospel. So he's using it here to explain uh, Jesus's transition from Cana, and Cal- from Cana in Galilee to Capernaum and then up to Jerusalem a few days later. So just two things I want to consider in this verse, two things that are they're so often overlooked. And honestly, I never paid a lot of attention to them. So I start studying this. And like I said, I've got ADD. I will go down a rabbit hole in a heartbeat. But first, I want you to notice who's with him. It's his mother, his brother. And if you look at that word, it can mean brothers and sisters. So like every every theologian is pretty convinced Jesus had sisters as well. Right. So he's got his mother. He's got his brothers, his sisters and his disciples. And I just I want to take this moment to remind you of how Jesus views and prioritizes family. Because they go down to Capernaum. So when you look into Mark, after they've gone down to Capernaum, this is where Jesus is teaching in the house. And it says in Mark 3.31, Jesus was in Capernaum teaching. And then his mother and his brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them. I hit the wrong button on my thing, so we go all out of here. But answering them, he said, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Like, Can you imagine what the churches would look like if we viewed one another the same way Jesus views us as a family, as a true family? If you're in Christ, we're all one in Christ. We're family. And I'll be honest with you, I'm a lot closer to my family here than I am my earthly family. I don't get to go around my family a lot because I don't do the things that they do. They don't invite me to come over a lot because I don't do the things that they do. And it's not that I don't love them because I love them very much, but sometimes we just, we can't fellowship with one another because we don't do the same things. We don't enjoy the same things. But my church family, you get it, right? Like we know where we, where we were, we know where we are, and now we know where we're going and we know who paid the price so that we can get there. And we have that to bond us. And you hear all the time that blood's thicker than water. And it's true to some sense, but the blood of Christ is a lot thicker than anything on this earth. And once that binds you together, that's how we need to look at one another as family. So there's one more thing I want you to notice here. So Jesus goes down to Capernaum. The point of showing us that Jesus went to Capernaum is that after Capernaum, he stayed there a few days and he goes to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, this is something I kind of thought about a lot when I'm, I'm reading it. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to put that in there, but here we go. So from Capernaum to Jerusalem is 120 miles. They didn't have cars back then. So Jesus walks 120 miles from Capernaum to Jerusalem to worship at the Passover, like all the Jewish males were commanded to do. And he's been doing this since he was a boy. He grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth was 80 miles from Jerusalem. So Jesus has grown up his entire life walking 
large distances to get to the temple to worship God. So this is also during Passover week. That's eight days of worship. You got one day to celebrate Passover and then seven days, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So when they get there, it took four days to walk. It would take us two hours to drive. They would stay eight days to worship in God's house. And we complain about waking up early on a Sunday morning, getting in our climate controlled cars, padded seats, driving a couple miles down the road, sitting in a padded church, in, a padded seat in church while we drink coffee, listen to an hour long sermon. That should convict all of us. Jesus knew that the value was in the Lord's house. The value was being with his people. And there was no distance that would stop these people from getting there. And we complain so much about sitting in here. I mean, we, we've got it made. We really do. And so often we take it for granted. But the point of that is, is Jesus takes worship seriously. We should take worship seriously. We find in the scriptures that he's always in the synagogues on the Sabbath and the temple during Passover. They were all commanded to be there. Jesus said to his mother in Luke 2.49, remember he was 12 years old, they left him. They forgot he was there and they come back looking for him and he says, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? How many of us take the time in the father's house? How many, take, how many of us take corporate worship as seriously as Jesus does? So many people reject corporate worship. My family being one of them, I talk to them all the time and they'll tell me the same thing that I'm sure you've all heard. I don't believe you have to go to church to be saved. I don't believe you read your Bible, is what I tell them, because it doesn't say that anywhere. <laughs> but they're right. You don't have to go to church to be saved. But once you are saved, you don't want to be anywhere else. Nowhere else. So do y'all remember it was a while back and I was one of the idiots, you know, when I was a teenager, I would make fun of it. But when the WWJD bracelets and T-shirts, were, I mean, it was what would Jesus do on the back of every car and t-shirt and bracelet and some guys would be cussing you out but they're wearing their bracelets you know but every once in a while you'll see some of them now but for the most part it's obsolete it's gone because you know the fad faded away and one reason I think it disappeared is because people actually started considering that question what would Jesus do once you consider that well it's, it's a little more convicting right it's not just a bracelet so you got to get rid of it and one of those of course is what would Jesus do on a Sunday well he'd be in church and my mama doesn't have to call and ask me where I'm at on Sundays. I've gotten two texts, one from a guy that I work with. He says, hey, good luck today. He knows I'm in church. My, my brother sends me a text. When you get out of church, give me a call. I got a question about a DUI I need to ask you. So, I mean, there's a, <laughs> but they know where I'm at right now. Like they don't have to ask where I'm at on a Sunday. But it's not only important that we're in church. It matters what we do when we get here. Right In verses 13 through 16, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem and he finds in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he makes a whip and drives them all out of the temper, temple, pours out the money and overturns the table. Now, I don't have a master's degree in theology, but I don't think he approves of what was going on in there. Right? I don't have to interpret too much. What's the problem, though? Why is Jesus so angry? And before we get into that, like I said, if you've got ADD like I do, this, this phrase will throw you. And when I was studying, there's not a lot of commentary on this. You want to go to John 3.16? There are volumes everywhere. You want to talk about Nicodemus in the garden? Volumes everywhere. You want to talk about Jesus being mad? You can find a couple verses, you know, a couple commentaries. People don't like to think about Jesus being mad. That's not the Jesus they want. They want a Jesus who was just forgiven and lets everything slide. But Jesus got mad. Yeah, he was angry. The first way John demonstrates Jesus' deity in this section is that he is God by showing that he's passion for reverence. He demands reverence for the Father. 
Because only God has the right to regulate worship. Do you think Jesus is God? Jesus gets to tell you how to worship him. If he made you, he gets to set the standards. But Jesus' anger was a righteous one. It's not the same anger that, okay, like I, I was angry on the way up here because I get behind a small little truck with a trailer who wants to go 45 and a 55, and it drives me insane. And I'm thinking about Jesus being angry in the temple, trying to meditate on this, and the first thing I do is, I mean, I don't cuss, but it's like Christian cuss words, you know, like, dadgummit, you saw a dog, and th-, you know, but it, <laughs> it, it, it gets me mad. But Jesus' anger came from, the complete disregard for reverence of his father. So I kind of want to set the scene for this because the, th- the tendency I had at least when thinking about what was going on in the temple is you imagine a small group of people hanging out. You've got, you know, some cattle, some sheep on the outside of the courts and a few people walking around with their animals in cages. But this can't be further from the truth. The usual population of Jerusalem on any average day is 100,000 people. But during the Passover, it would swell to over 2 million people. Think of it this way. You ever had to drive through Atlanta during a Braves game? You ever drove through Atlanta during a Braves game and when Tech was playing at home? Or how about when the Braves, Tech, and then you've got Dragon Con and all the other weird stuff that goes on up there. It will be packed. It swells up. That's what's going on in Passover. Every Jewish male over the age of 12 years old has to come here. This is when they come and offer their sacrifices. That's a lot of people. So think of it this way. There would have been thousands and thousands of people in the temple and thousands of animals. The Jewish historian Josephus said that there's more than 250,000 animals sacrificed during Passover. Does anybody hunt? Do you know what that smells like when you field dress a deer? Could you imagine that smell of blood and guts everywhere? That's what's going on in Jerusalem. 250,000 animals were slaughtered during Passover week. And for most people, it's not feasible for them to bring their own animals, right? They, they're not going to load up an ox and then, you know, walk four days with the ox. They would just wait till they got to Jerusalem and they would buy one. And so there's plenty of room in Jerusalem to sell ox outside of the temple. But they set it up inside the temple so that it would be more convenient. And when you first look at it, you don't think that that's that big of a deal. But then you've got the people that actually do bring their oxen, their own sheep, their own doves. And now we've got people that purchase license from the temple guards and the the chief priest, and they get to inspect your animals. The problem is, is that no animal ever passed. No animal was ever spotless. So now you have to upcharge and they'll sell you their own animal. And after they sell you their animal, they'll buy your animal for pennies on the dollar, put it in the back of the line and sell it to somebody else later. That's what was going on. And then you've got the money changers. The money changers are the same. They're doing the same thing. They're not, people travel these great distances so they don't have the same currency as the temple tax that they have to pay. It's not the, the right money. So they change it. But the percentage was insane. They said some of it was like 12 to 15 percent on the dollar that they're having to, you know, exchange. So these people are making a lot of money on it. And I was thinking about this and what the best way to explain it. And it's a lot like a Braves game. I know the last Braves game that we went to, I preached at a different church and we went with our church. Right. Like we had a group to go up and uh, watch the Braves. Well, of course, we're leaving late because we were at a different church. Um, I preach there, I jump, I'm changing the clothes, you know, inside the car while we go down the road. But, of course, Cassie drove last, so we had to stop and get gas because I don't think she knows how to do that. And uh, so while we stop and we're getting gas, I'm, you know, I grab a water, but I get one of the big Dasani's. It's $1.50, 
right? So I'm drinking my Dasani, and we get to the game, and I'm drinking it on the way to the stadium. When I get to the stadium, I still got some in it, but I have to throw it away. That's convenience store Dasani. That's not Braves Dasani, right? I can't drink that inside there. So I walk through the gate, 20 feet later, stand in a line of 50 people for 30 minutes to buy a small Dasani that cost me six bucks. That's the exact same idea of what's going on. They're price gouging. But see, the water at the Braves game is priced with greed. And everything at the temple was priced with greed. But it was disguised as religion. And that's what ticked Jesus off the most. You want to see that kind of, that idea of what's going on? Turn it on TBN. You'll see those guys yelling at you, selling you holy water and prayer cloths for $50. It's a pair of hanes that they cut up into squares, by the way. Like... 50 bucks, though. And, but there are people out there that believe it because these guys disguise themselves as religious figures. And everybody wants to earn their way. That's the American way, right? Like we're we, we're going to work for it. God's not just going to give us anything. We'll earn it because if we earn it, God owes us. And if God owes us, we can do whatever we want to do. But to make matters even worse, it was also where they were set up. They weren't outside the temple. They were inside the courts of the temple. You imagine walking in and seeing animals and sacrifices, um, money changers, all that here where you're supposed to pray. The outer courts, that was the only place that the Gentiles were allowed to go and worship God. They couldn't go any further. And all of you, unless you're Jewish, would be Gentiles. So you travel all this way to worship the true and living God. And as you're trying to pray and worship him, there's the sound of animals and money changers and people. And they're cutting through the temple because it's quicker than walking around. They've opened it up for business and for trade. And there's no worship of God going on. But, you know, it's have you ever been to a farm. I, we've, Matt and I have lived on a cow farm for like 20 years. Just the rain would stir up all the smells. You know what comes out of animals? Like that's what's in the floor. Like there's, you know, the smell of just what Paul calls dung, right? Like there's just, that's covered in the temple where you're supposed to be worshiping God. So all this junk, all this garbage, all this refuse, all the greed, all the money changing, everything that was going on. Now, Jesus is angry and he's got every right to be. But here's what would happen in our society today. Well, Jesus shouldn't go in there and flip those tables and run them off because at least they're there, right? That's what we want. We need the people in there because when they come, they bring their money. When they bring their money, we can do all sorts of things and different evangelistic whatevers. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't care if he upsets anybody anyway because they're not revering the Father. They have no care about God or anybody trying to get to him. So Jesus makes a whip. I love that. Like, Jesus made a whip and he drove them out. And here's, here's the best part. And I want us to really think about this. What's the response of the Jews? Jesus is standing around hundreds of thousands of people. He makes a whip the size of a belt probably. Drives every one of them out of the temple. And then they ask him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? See, this is the difference between those who have eyes to see and those who don't. This is probably the most underrated miracle, and one that will even go unnoticed if you're not thinking about it. Jesus, by himself, drove out hundreds of thousands of people and all the animals with a whip. 
Just go back to a Braves game again. This is the best way I can describe it because I think most of us have been there. Or a high school football game. There's not even a thousand people at most high school football games. If I went out there with my belt, started whipping it around and said, everybody get out of here. Somebody's going to call the cops, one. There's always security. They're going to grab me up. Or there's always going to be a couple of big guys that you know, would just take me down for the fun of it. And everybody will just keep going on. Can one guy drive out hundreds of thousands of people along with all the oxen and they just listened? Everybody went. He cleaned house by himself. That's, I mean, if you go to a Braves game and try that, there's security everywhere. Unless Tennessee beats Alabama, then they can just run the field and ruin everything anyway. We watched that last night. But you think one cop would be able to go on that field and run everybody out? No. But that's what Jesus just did. The temple had guards that had Roman soldiers that had to keep watch over them. And if Jesus would have actually struck anybody, if there would have been violence, then the Roman guards would have had to take over because they're not going to have that. They can't have disruption, right? They controlled everything. Temple guards, Roman guards, nobody reacted. Everybody listened to what Jesus said. And it reminded me of John 18 when Judas led the Roman cohort and all the officers of the chiefs, priests, and the Pharisees. And it says in verse 5 that Jesus asked, who were they looking for? And they answered him. They said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas, who was betrayed him, was standing with him. And so when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. When Jesus asserts his authority, you will bow. You're going to bow. You're going to kneel. And when Jesus cleans house, you're going to leave. You don't even know what's going on. They, they were ran out of there and they get outside with hundreds of thousands of people. Jesus standing in the temple by himself and said, show us a sign. Don't be that guy. While they're asking for a sign, his disciples who believe, who have been given eyes to see, who the Lord has opened their hearts, they remembered what was written. It says in verse 17, zeal for your house will consume me. None of the religious leaders of the temple could put two and two together, but the uneducated fishermen of Galilee were able to go back and recall Psalm 69.9 and understand that Jesus would not tolerate in reverence toward God. It's worth noting, too, that David wrote this psalm while being persecuted because of his zeal for God's house and his defense of God's honor. Jesus was persecuted for his zeal. The early church was persecuted for their zeal. And you'll be persecuted, too, if you have any zeal and stand up for the honor of God. You'll be persecuted. People aren't going to like you. You're going to go against all of the grain. And, of course, as true believers, like they can see. They know they're basking in the glories of what Jesus is doing. They're like, oh, my gosh, this is him. This is the Messiah. They're watching the miracle take place. But the religious people want to see a sign as he's giving them a sign. But standing outside the temple while they're asking, Jesus gives them a sign. And this went viral back in the day. Jesus said to them in verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And, of course, they mock him, and they say it took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But verse 21, he was speaking of his body. And that's the second way that Jesus, I mean, that John confirms the deity of Jesus is by proclaiming his authority over death. Only God can lay his life down. Only God can pick it back up again. And that's what he did. So in verse 22, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. This claim, like I said, went viral. It was spread all over the place. And in a, three years later, when Jesus was on the cross in Mark 15, 29, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. And then Matthew 27, 44 says that the robbers who were crucified with him were saying the same words. Everybody remembered that he said 
destroy this temple and raise it up. They still didn't understand it was the body because they were actively destroying the temple. And he's just waiting. So soon Jesus is going to give up his spirit. He's going to be buried. But in three days, the stone rolled away and our Lord would walk out of the grave victorious over sin and death. They destroyed the temple. He rebuilt it in three days. That's the sign. That's the only sign you get. That's the only sign I get. And we should never ask the Lord for a sign. He's given it to us. It's the resurrection of Jesus. That's it. And we have a tendency to water down the word and to play church instead of being the church, to be more man-centered than Christ-centered. But someone once said this, that God created man in his image. So we return the favor by creating a God in ours. Don't be fooled by easy believism. Don't be led astray by smoke and mirrors. Jesus sent some barefoot hippie with salon quality hair walking around the desert just overlooking sin. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he takes worship seriously. He takes the care of his temple seriously. The Jerusalem temple was destroyed seven years after Jesus was crucified because we don't need it. Jesus began his public ministry by cleansing the temple. And three years later, he ended it by cleansing it again. Just before he became the true and final Passover lamb. So Jesus begins it by cleansing it. He ends it by cleansing it. So I'd say he takes the condition of his temple pretty seriously, right? And I pray that we don't look at this section and think, oh, those stupid religious leaders. Or, you know, or we don't think about the other people, other churches that are doing the things that we're not supposed to do. That's not how this is written. It's written for us to look at ourselves because we're the temple. And what do we need to cleanse out of our temple? What is hindering us from worshiping God? The temple in Jerusalem is no more. But 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? In 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Again, is there a need for cleansing in your temple? What distractions are keeping you from true worship? What disgusting, smelly beasts are standing in your way? We talked about the miracle at Canaan last week and the miracle of the sweet wine. But I hope when I've looked at these passages in my Bible, the way it was lined up, it says miracle at Cana and the cleansing of the temple. They were right beside each other the way the columns went up. So... Don't forget how quickly that miracle of sweet wine can turn into a whip. Hebrews 12, 6 reminds us, For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he punishes every son that he accepts. So if that emptiness inside of you has been turned into sweet wine, and you start to fill it up with all the junk and the garbage of the world, he's coming with a whip. He'll take care of his temple. And then you, of course, like I said, I have a lot of conversations with people and a lot of it's my family. And people have had these conversations with me in the past before I was saved. And I would say the same thing that I hear now. You don't know my heart. But Jesus knows what's in me. Jesus knows that I love him. Jesus knows my heart. I hear that all the time. Yes, he does. In fact, that's the third and final demonstration of his deity. Only God truly knows what's in the hearts of men. And in verse 23 through 25, Jesus said, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and he did not need anyone to testify concerning men, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows the human heart. And we'll find out next week and over the next few weeks with Nicodemus and the woman at the well that he is truly capable of discerning the difference between a true faith and a superficial faith. So it's easy to get caught up in a moment and proclaim belief and everyone around you agrees with you, but 
Then these same people, the same ones that 23 and 25 are talking about, the ones that claimed, oh, they saw the signs and they believed in Jesus because the whole crowd was going that way. Three years later, were the same people shouting crucify because it was a fad. It was superficial belief. They were seeing miracles. They were getting something out of it and they believed. But as soon as time got hard, as soon as you had to pay a cost for standing up for Jesus, we yell crucify. Or we just make up our own Jesus. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And in verse 10, the Lord says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. You can't hide from Jesus in church. He knows why you're here. He knows when you get home. He knows you when you're here. He knows you at all times. D.L. Moody once said that character is what you are in the dark. Who you are in the dark, that's who Jesus knows. You can't hide from him. Jesus knows your heart, your true motives for worship. He knows why you're here. And as we've seen, he takes it very seriously. So I'll end with this. Spurgeon said when preaching on this passage, um, he says that I would this whip fall upon your backs that you might be flogged out of your self-righteousness and made to fly to Jesus Christ to find shelter. Because it's only in him that we find the shelter. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the, the privilege and the opportunity it is to be here. I just pray that our hearts and minds were open to receive your word and that we truly do examine ourselves. Father, that if there's any distractions in our temples, that if there's anything that's hindering us from worshiping you truly, that you would clean house, that you would come in and drive it out. Father, and that, that we would stop Stop just going with crowds. Stop forsaking you for popularity. I just pray that if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, Father, that you draw them to you and bend their knees. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Real Church Coweta. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please visit our website at realchurchcoweta.com and click on the Contact Us tab. We invite you to join us every Sunday at 10 a.m. in the Worship Center on the campus of Central Christian School in Sharpsburg. Until then, God bless and remember to love God, love others, and live real.